0: Good morning. It is a great morning. We've already had six baptisms in the first gathering, six more in this one. Come on! Isn't that great? If we haven't met, my name is Brian. As Susan mentioned, I would love to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here on staff and would love to meet you. And as she mentioned, we're in this teaching series called Exiles where we are looking at 1 Peter. We are going sometimes like earthworm slow or, or some, we're just going slow through it. We want us to understand it, to bring its teaching into our lives. And uh, it's been good for me. I, hopefully it's been good for you. Um, and I just want to start starting this off uh, about... About, uh, about 15 years ago, Pete, our worship pastor and I, we actually worked on staff at a different church. We've known each other for a long time. We go way back. And this was in the early early to mid 2000s. Do you guys remember those times? Pete and I, we looked like JV Gap models. Uh, we had the bootcut corduroys. Anybody remember bootcut corduroys? I think those have been stricken away. I think Goodwill doesn't even offer those to you. And we had that one abhorrent piece of facial hair that is uh, to be rejected by all peoples the soul patch. Now, if you have a soul patch, put that mask, make sure that mask is on, and then quickly address it when you get home. Uh, so, just a, this, you know, pastoral wisdom comes in all different kinds. So, so Pete and I, we, we rocked the bootcut corduroys. We had the sole patch. We had the dark rim glasses. We had flannels. We looked pretty similar. He had more hair. I also had more hair. Um, and some of it was on my face. Um, and at one point while working on, at this church staff, an elderly gentleman walked up to Pete and, and started a conversation with him. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, Pete realized that he, that the man he was talking to thought he was talking to me. And, you know, moments like that, you have an option, don't you? You can say, excuse me, sir, uh, you're, you're, you're actually not talking to the person you're thinking you're talking to, or you can just kind of like, let it ride <laughs> and just see how long the conversation can go and just, just either have a modicum of fun with it or just kind of not try to embarrass him by saying that his judgment uh, was, is not, you know, whatever. So Pete decided to let it ride. and. Um, Funnily enough, uh, funnily, if that's a word, uh, about a week later, the same man came up to me in a different part of the church on Sunday morning and started talking to me as if I was Pete. And uh, this one, though, was a little bit, it wasn't just the particularities of ministry, church stuff. He started talking about family stuff. Uh, Pete's wife's name is Aaron. Hey, how's Aaron doing? Ah, And so I knew that I had Pete by the jugular. I could do whatever I, I could say whatever I wanted there. Fortunately, I did. And I still remind him of that. Hey, Pete, remember. Um... But has, have you ever reminded someone of someone else? Like someone come up to you and say, hey, you, you know, you look like so-and-so. Has anyone ever told you that you look like this person? Oh, when you say that thing, you remind me of this person. Or, you know, like you look like someone. This can be good news, you know, especially if somebody says you look like this movie star and the movie star is not Steve Buscemi. I mean, if it's Steve Buscemi, then you're kind of like, ah. But like it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. It can be annoying or it can be kind of encouraging depending on who you are, the situation, whatever. But here's where I'm getting at. Peter writing to this... Five churches in modern-day Turkey, then Asia Minor. In the passage that we're looking at today, he's saying the most important thing, churches, the most important thing, Jesus followers, is that you would remind the world of Jesus, that you would look like Jesus, that when people looked at you, they would say, that looks like hope. That looks like meaning. That looks like truth. That looks like joy. Is if that's what Jesus looks like, then I'm interested. Peter's saying that that is the most important thing. When people see you, that they don't see you, your biases or your anger or your prejudice or your even your pain, but they see Jesus. That's the most important thing. And here's the thing. The only way we look like Jesus to the world is if we walk in the way of Jesus. Say that again. The only way we look like Jesus to the world is if we walk in the way of Jesus. If we walk in the way of the left or the right, we look like the left or the right. We don't look like Jesus. We have to walk in the way of Jesus if we want to look like Jesus. And so this passage of scripture really describes what I am what I believe is the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus. We're going to be starting in verse 11, chapter 2. If you have a Bible out or a Bible, you can open it to 1 Peter chapter Chapter 2, verse 11. If you have an app, whatever, you know how to work it. Verse 11, it says this Dear friends, I urge you. The word dear friends, there are words, dear friends, it's one word in the Greek, and it has the root word agape. So, what, what Peter's saying here, he says, like, people that I love, beloved ones, dear friends. And then the next word he says is, I urge you, dear friends, beloved ones, people that I love, I urge you. This is the tone of both intimacy and exhortation. Parents know this tone, don't we? Teachers know this tone. And it's important that we keep in mind that this tone pervades the rest of the text. He's saying, I love you so much, you need to pay attention to this. That's what he's saying. Keep your eyes focused on this. Adhere to what I'm saying. This is vital. Dear friends, I urge you as what, as foreigners and exiles. This is the third time Peter has used language like this to describe the people he's writing to. C.S. Lewis uh, at one point said or, or wrote that the Father, God, refreshes us in this earthly life with many pleasant ends, but doesn't want us to mistake any of them as home. What Lewis is saying there is that we get lots of joys in this life. We get the sunshine, we get friendship, we get good food, we get a great movie, a good book, whatever. Uh, But but none of them are signs that this is our ultimate home. They're pleasant ends. They're not our final resting place. And Peter is picking up on that. He's saying that we should feel like we're a little bit of exiles, maybe like we're foreigners, that this isn't our final destination. Because we live in a way that's different from the world. Our actions reflect a way that is different from the leaders of the world. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The things that, 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 are, that, that take you away from Jesus don't reflect who you truly are. They are in competition and combat with who you truly are. He's saying, live such good lives. This is important. This is, one of the ma- this is the main thing he's saying here. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us live. How do we live? We live such good lives that though they might accuse you of doing wrong, though they might not understand, though they might mock, though they might say, oh, those Christians, they don't do it because Christians are being boneheaded. They do it because we're being weird in the right way. Don't you know that? There's, there's ways Christians can be weird in the wrong way. In the last five years, we've seen plenty of examples. Unfortunately, can I just be honest? And the, the media will fixate on those things, right, to our, uh, to unfortunately. But Peter's saying, when, when they when, live such good lives, that when they accuse, they, they may accuse you of being, being weird, but let them accuse you of being weird for the right reason. So, that, so when God shows up, all the pieces come into place. And they go, wow, you did remind me of love. You did remind me of hope. You did remind me of meaning. You did remind me of purpose. You did look like those. Is that what Jesus looks like? That must be what Jesus looks like. A little bit of context on this um, because it's important for us to understand the context of the first century, you know, like the first century, it was common to say that there is one Lord and it is Caesar. And the Christians come along and they say, there is one Lord and it is Jesus. Right? So it's, you're different. They're Christians already, they're looking different. They're acting different. They're behaving different. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor and author says, pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. Be weird in the right ways. Live such good lives among those that aren't followers of Jesus that when they look at you, they see Jesus. They see Jesus. This is important. There's a study done by Cornell University years back about Christians, church-going religious people, Christians, I guess, uh, and tipping. I know, it's weird. Like who authored this study? Did they want to like find out Christians were good tippers or bad tippers? What was their bias? I don't know. But the study pointed out or found out that Christians on average were actually subpar tippers. Unfortunate, you know? I know, let the conviction sting a little bit for those of you. But here's the, here's the thing, like like why this is important. Like, we you know, we are probably the only group of people in a restaurant that would pray before a meal, right? So the waiter, have you ever been interrupted when you're praying at a meal? You're kind of like trying to do two things, like I am I'm supposed to close my eyes, but I'm also like, oh, they're waiting. This is awkward, you know? You know, we're the only type of people that pray before a meal. Here would be the terrible thing. We're already weird because we're praying before a meal, but don't be weird because then also we're tipping poorly. You know, what what, the, what Peter's saying is, live such good lives that though, though they may tease you because they're praying before a meal, they are blown away because the tip is way bigger than anyone else would ever give. Right? Peter's saying, be weird in the right ways. Don't be weird in the wrong ways. Live such good life. Let them see Jesus. There is nothing more important, he's saying, than the world not seeing your own pet prejudices and biases and interests and opinions and thoughts and hot takes. No, let him see Jesus. Let him see Jesus. So Peter goes on. To, after he set this kind of his doctoral thesis of wanting the church to be the group of people that resembles and reflects the life and attitudes, the way of Jesus, the heart of Jesus. After he, That's his doctoral thesis. After he's made that clear, he goes on to delineate two different ways on which we can live out the life and the heart, the teaching, the way of Jesus in society. And they're two very non-contentious, easy to talk about ones. The first is politics. The second is slavery. Shouldn't be... Uh, shouldn't be any issues talking about it. (laughs) Verse 13, uh, Peter says this, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. If you're underline, if you're an underliner, then just go ahead, underline for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That's, he's repeating himself. That's the same thing he said earlier on. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom to, as a cover-up for evil. He's saying, don't go saying, well, I'm free. I can do what I want to. No. Live as God's slaves. That's another, underline that if you have that. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Now, if I can be transparent, if, if, we just, if I just picked out what I wanted to teach every Sunday, I probably would strategically avoid a passage like this. Right? I'd like to throw in, make sure John 3.16. We'll spend like a uh, hundred days of the week, Sundays on that, and then we'll move on to something else that's nice and, and doesn't ruffle too many feathers. But here's the thing: is, as, as a leadership here at Anchor, we want to be under Scripture's authority because Scripture reveals who God is. So we want to be under God's authority and scripture's authority. So that means we want to inquire and understand what Scripture says and learn from it. So but still, if I could be honest, like talking about politics and church is, you know, like, well, um, because like, what are the two things we can't talk about? Like, you know, in culture, religion and politics. And here I'm doing both, guys. <laughs> yeah, someone, one person is excited about that. <laughs> it's the person that's applying for lead pastor of Anchor Church after this. <laughs> just joking, just joking. Gonna be here for a long time. This passage, if we're to be continuing this theme of honesty, this passage is one I've had to interact with a lot. And our leadership here at Anchor has had to interact with a lot over the last two years as like, this things have, elected officials have made decisions that affect all corners and areas of society. And we've had to grapple with this passage and prayerfully think through not how to avoid it, but how to think through how it determines and describes how we should act in this moment. The main principle here though, throughout it, is like that we would show the world Jesus. That our actions wouldn't be like, look how great we are, or look how defiant we are, or look how much we don't care about X or care about Y, but that we would show the world. Anchor, can I just say, like, wouldn't that, isn't that our goal? And in a world that is increasingly, in a part of a country that's increasingly disinterested about Jesus, we don't want to show pet religious biases or cultural opinions or hot. T- we just want to show the world Jesus because here's the thing, only Jesus has the power to save, not your political opinions. They, don't have, they, have the, they have some power, but they don't have the power to save. And if the most important thing is that people might experience the salvation that is freely offered in the work and the person of Jesus, then why would we want to do anything else? I was listening to a, um, a podcast recently. Um, a couple high up doctors, some scientists slash doctors, um, and uh, had to put it on point five speed because I'm like, okay, B cells. Okay, remind me again. Uh, I'm like, I scripture I can do. Science is gonna have to go a little slower. Um, but it was fascinating, and uh, you know, I, I'm trying to kind of, uh, kind of just at least be conversant with some of the stuff that's happening in our pandemical moment. Um, and um, I don't believe any of them were Jesus followers, but there's this brilliant insight, just all of a sudden, right in the middle of it. One of them said, you know, one of the things that hap- has happened in our secular society, secularism means a type of philosophy that has moved God to the margins. What's happened, and this is the person, I don't know their faith commitments at all, but one of the, um, what's happened in our secular society is that as we've pushed God to the margins, we've created a God-shaped hole in the mid of our, middle of our culture. And so we've, filled this, we've tried to fill this God-shaped hole with our political convictions, our convictions on where we stand with masks or vaccines. And what happens is, is because that we put our opinions and our thoughts and sometimes even our well-developed thoughts and opinions in there, and we give them ultimate authority. What happens is because this thing that's not meant to have ultimate authority now has ultimate authority, it really just creates deeper levels of tribalism, deeper rifts, and it creates an inner ability to be in relationship with people that have a different opinion than you God is the only thing that has the power to bring people from different perspectives together in open in fellowship and I was blown away like yes and amen and I don't know if you're preaching or just having a call I don't know but like but here's the thing is that this happens as and Peter's alluding to this when he says this Submit yourself, what I told you to underline, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Don't, not because of whoever is in elected offices because it's like some great whatever, but for the Lord's sake. Recognize that there is one who is, has ultimate authority and he still is on the throne and he is the one that you are ultimately accountable. Now, as you're accountable to God, now also live in humility and honor and respect in this earthly life. Live as God's slaves, not using your freedom to, at the expense of others. It goes on um, after uh, talking about politics. And, that, and, and so like, like, as Christians, like we get to, as Jesus Christ, we get to bring honor to all areas of our life. We get to show Jesus in all areas of our life. There's too much, I'm gonna show contentiousness in all areas of my life. There's too much of that already. Let's bring Jesus to all areas of our life. He goes on, Peter goes on to talk about what we're saying, the way of Jesus in the workplace. Now, um, I want this kind of discordant little note because he talks about slavery here. And so workplace slavery, I want you to feel that tension, like, wait, 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 what is... Okay, I wanna talk a little bit about slavery in the first century and slavery in the Bible, um, because I think that's important for us to understand because you may have heard some type of uh, combatant person saying, well, the Bible is pro-slavery, you know? And I'm gonna just say, it's not at all, it's not. In fact the most one of the most major pieces of the Bible is God delivering slaves from Egypt into a place that is safe the promised land that's one of the most the most pivotal stories in all of scripture so But pressing in a little bit on this, before we get to the text, it's important for us to understand it before we get to the text. You know, the 19th century slavery that we often have in mind that took place here around the world um, in the 19th century, 18th century, uh, you know, is not the type of slavery that existed in the first century. The 19th century and 18th century slavery of colonial America or, or, um, is really a type of slavery, and we know this, that is built on the premise of racism, of an inferior race and a superior race. That, I mean, it should be obvious and that, that it's evil and abhorrent and to be obviously rejected as not congruent with anything in scripture. That's, that is the type of, but it, that wasn't the type of slavery in the first century. Now, it's important to note too that the type of slavery in the first century was also evil as it treated people not in light of their image bearing, that they bear the image of God, but in light of a commodification with the certain cultural arrangements. Um, with non-biblical hierarchies of master and slave. But it's important to note that it wasn't, a prem- that wasn't built on the premise of racism. People became slaves in the first century, either because they were part of a, co- a country that was conquered and all of a sudden they are slaves because they're conquered or they were in debt. So they had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debt or they were born in it. And to the point that in the first century Roman world, about 16% of the population were slaves. It's a large percentage of the population. One person um, is noted as saying that it was was like, like we can't imagine a world without electricity. Similarly, the first century Roman world, they couldn't imagine a world without slavery. It was that interconnected to everyday life. Now, it's interesting because typically in in the first century, there's lots of things called household codes. A household code was usually written to a man, how he could manage his wife, manage his kids, and manage his slaves. The New Testament also has household codes, but interestingly enough, they're not written to a man on how he can manage all these different people, but they are written to each different group of people that are are being talked about, meaning that it's giving each of the types of people the agency and the freedom to make decisions as image-bearing, as people that bear the image of God. This is different from the Roman world. So just even the fact that slaves are spoken to in the first century world is actually revolutionary. Then just going a little farther, I mean, this is read out loud to churches that assumes that slaves are in the room. In the first century world, they're slaves. Why would we let them in the room? But in the first century, but. The church saw things differently. Paul would say uh, in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Paul is saying the major hierarchies of the first century world, they mean nothing in Christ. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither master nor slave. It is equal. Paul is saying as this, 16% of the population are slaves and and, and the whole premise of the Roman world is built on slavery. And Paul's saying it means nothing in God's eyes. Philemon, a book towards the end of the New Testament that you probably haven't read, uh, talks about a runaway slave named Onesimus who runs away from his slave master and finds Paul. Paul leads him to Jesus. And Paul writes a letter back to Philemon, the slave master and says, hey, Onesimus is coming back. He was your slave, but I'm sending him back as your brother, treat him as such. What does that mean? That the power of the gospel has the ability to turn people that were considered slaves into equal in the eyes of their master as brothers and sisters. This is, yeah, you want to clap with this. You want to clap with this. Let me just tell you, let me just tell you, let me just tell you this, that the reason why Roman slavery stopped is because of the church. The reason why the slavery in the Roman world stopped is because Christians became more powerful and the institution crumbled away because Christians saw that that we were all created in the image of God equal and, and we have incredible worth because Jesus died for all. That's powerful. That didn't happen because of some Roman insight. It happened because of Jesus And similarly, although there were people that twisted scripture and colonial slavery and said, figured out ways to twist it, to make it work for their own deceptive biased notions of what is right and wrong, it was abolitionists using scripture that were able to combat it and ended towards the the that ended the, brought about the abolition of slavery. So as Christians again, that ended it in the 19th century manifestation of slavery. We have a powerful book and a powerful God who makes the slaves free and releases the captives. All that said, we pick up in verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, not in reverent fear of your master, notable, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? He's using hyperbole as an as a exaggerated example. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. So what we want to do is extrapolate this out into understanding how we show Jesus in our workplace how we show Jesus where we labor. You can say right now there's two ends of the spectrum of like how we should interact in a conflicted space in a challenging environment in our workplace. The first is the I have my rights paradigm, which is totally legitimate. We experience pain, we experience conflict, we experience challenge, and we can kind of raise our hand and talk to HR. Let me just say there wasn't an HR department in the first century slavery dynamic. So they didn't have that agency, but we have that agency. We have the ability to leave a job and take another job. We have the agency to to talk to HR or talk to our our supervisor and have a conversation about something that's difficult in our work dynamic. And that's something that we need to take advantage of at the right time. But what what, what Peter's saying here is kind of the other end of the spectrum. Peter's saying that occasionally and at different times in our life, we will find ourselves in situations where we may be mocked, teased, misunderstood to our face or behind our back. Where our integrity may unjustly be called into question in our workplace. Welcome to the world. (laughs) And when that happens, Peter is saying, in that environment, still, the most important thing you can do is show Jesus to the world. The most important thing you can do, even in that environment, is to show Jesus to the world. Yes, sometimes we need to raise our hand. Sometimes we need to take to HR. Sometimes we need to take advantage of the agency that we have living in this 21st century world. And sometimes we need to love the person that is treating us unjustly. And stay in a workplace environment even if it's challenging to not retaliate in kind, but to offer love rather than defense, reaction, or retaliation. As the way, not as just being passive, not as just being codependent, not as being like, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, so I'll just kind of, no, 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 I'm okay, I'm okay. Meanwhile, you're nursing all this pain and wound. No, in the sense of, no, I know that ultimately God is in control and he sees me and I'm going to live out of a deep awareness of that. Not only that, but I'm going to live out of a deep awareness that even though I'm having a hard time loving this person, I know God does. And I don't want anything to obstruct the fact that God loves them. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to allow the pain to exist. I'm going to talk with friends. I'm going to pray if it's challenged, but I'm going to also let them see Jesus. Verse 21 says, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. What is the way of Jesus? That you would follow in his steps. This is what Peter's saying. This is the way of Jesus. Hashtag Mandalorian. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one, just you need to underline this when we're coming back to the, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The way of Jesus described by Peter is seen in not reacting impulsively or defending yourself after every perceived attack, but in those situations, being mindful of God that he is in control, that he sees you, and that he has the ultimate last word. And when we live from that place, not only do we find a great internal strength that the world cannot take away, but also we show the world Jesus. Recently I had a conversation, not regarding anything around anchor or anything like that, but I had a conversation uh, with someone who, who, the summation of the conversation was basically, Brian, uh, you're not doing a good enough, try harder. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like that. Uh, and I felt in me, and maybe you felt this, some of the same thing, thing. I felt in me, I wanted to bring some evidence to the court as well. Say, I have evidence that you're also not trying, you're not doing good enough. You should try harder, right? Um, this phone, phone conversation, uh, though, uh, I, didn't, I didn't show that evidence to the court. I think, honestly, because there's a little Holy Spirit intervention. Instead of that, God put this verse on my mind, probably because I was studying it. He, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. There's no need for defensiveness in the life of a Jesus follower. There's no need for impulsive reaction or activity in the life of a Jesus follower. There's no need for toxic vitriol coming in response to toxic vitriol. Sometimes we're not emotionally healthy or caught off guard, and that's what comes out. But as the mainstay, there's no need for that. Instead, we get the option of entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, showing the world Jesus. How do we get the power to do that? Because let me tell you, it does not come naturally. You're You're not gonna read some... Pop psychology blog, you know, on like, oh, here's three easy steps to to, towards non-retaliation. If you do, they're not gonna work. How do we do that? Verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, it says, for by his wounds, by his wounds, you were healed. There's verse 25. It says, for you all were like sheep going astray. Where's the power in that? The power is here in that pronoun you. He does not say by his wounds, they were healed. How pitiful they are. Look, they got, finally they got healed because of all the work he had to do. He says, by his wounds, you were healed. For you, not they were like sheep going astray. how messed up, finally they found their way back. By, but you were going astray. When we know, when you know, anchor, when we know that we Not just, not them over there, but we were the objects of God's sacrificial love most clearly exemplified on the cross where he bore the full weight of our brokenness to offer the full weight of his riches towards us. When we know that we are the recipients of an inheritance that can't spoil, perish, or fade. When we know that we did nothing for it rather than receive it, even though we did everything that would warrant anything but it, we were given it freely. When we know that we are the objects of his love, we can then love other people. that? When you know what you deserve and then what you've been given, you can look straight in the eyes of someone else, no matter what they're saying, and find the inner resolve and strength to offer them what Jesus offered you. And in so doing, you're showing the world Jesus.